Okay, is it 1.30 on your uh, iPhone? <laughs> Look, he's got a watch. Dude, I like it. You and me, man, the last two. The last of the Mohicans. Well, my name is Dan McDonald, and I welcome you to the seminar. It is going to be quite an interactive seminar. So uh, you can take notes if you want, but almost everything I'm going to say, I actually have typed out and printed out, and I will give to you as a giveaway gift so that you don't need to focus on taking notes. You can focus on interacting. Does that sound like a deal? Perfect. So we'll enjoy our time together. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for uh, the next hour or so that we have to think about and talk about church planting and revival. I thank you for the opportunity we have as a group of people who don't know each other, but we do know you. And in you, we are brother and sister, part of the same family, and we thank you for that. And we just ask you now that you would be here by your Spirit. We've had a full morning. We've had lunch. We're probably a little bit lulled by it, and so we need you now to come enliven us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Come on in, guys. Uh, We're just about to start now. So uh, my topic is revival and church planting. It was assigned to me because I'm a church planter, and then I started talking to people about it, and it is a massive, massive topic way beyond me. So I'm going to take a few slices of this whole topic, and we're going to talk about them, and then and we're going to interact with them. Does that sound like a deal? Okay. So I've got three main points of discussion. First of all, I want to talk about the relationship between revival and church planting, how revival has often been a catalyst to church planting. Secondly, I want to talk about how church planting plays the reverse role of catalyzing renewal and revival. And thirdly, I want to talk about the kind of church plants we should be involved in if we're going to do it, in my opinion, and then we're going to have fun and we'll hear your opinion. Sound like a deal? Okay. First talk, church planting and its relationship with revival. The first thing I want to say is that church planting is a common fruit, symptom, result of God's Spirit coming in and reviving or renewing His church. One of the most striking things about revivals is their impact on church planting. Have, who, is, who has been involved in church planting of any kind? Just a couple of you. Okay. Who has been involved in an actual revival? Yeah. Not too many of us. So, so we don't know much about it. What we mostly know is what we've read. We've read these great stories of revivals in history, and they have... They've been amazing. If you've at all read about the revival that happened around the Reformation or the revival that happened around the Great Awakening, we hear these incredible things about churches exploding two months after they were dead. Just this incredible, amazing visitation of the Holy Spirit. And what I want to say is, what's less talked about is, when those revivals have happened, what has happened to church planting in those environments? And the striking thing is, that in most major revivals, there is a huge explosion of church planting. Let me just give you two examples. There are many more that we could talk about, but time will flee, and you'll get bored if we talk too much about it, but we're going to talk about two. The first one is, we're going to talk about three, excuse me. The first one's found in your Bible. So pick your Bible up and go to the first great revival in the history of the church, the book of Acts. You realize that the Spirit has first come During this period, this sort of Pentecostal period, the Spirit is moving. People are being converted like crazy. Peter has said the last days have come when people will prophesy and people will, uh, young men will dream dreams and there are signs and wonders breaking out and there's also persecution breaking out. As a result of this move of the Spirit, go to Acts 7. In Acts 7, Peter... um, Uh, Stephen gets stoned. Stephen, by the way, if you don't know, Stephen is a deacon, but Stephen is also the most gifted, naturally and spiritually, preacher in the New Testament church at the time. Uh, Paul has not yet been converted, and from what we know of Paul's own letters, he wasn't actually a very good speaker. He was a much better writer than speaker. This is their guy. This is their best preacher, and he gets killed. Because the Spirit has come, and the people are being awakened, and the enemy is not enjoying this whatsoever. And so what happens is, look at Acts chapter 8, okay? In 7, Stephen dies. Now, 
Look at the last part of Acts chapter 7. Falling to his knees, I'm reading the very last verse of Acts chapter 7. Falling to his knees, he, that is Stephen, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he, told, when he said this, he fell asleep. Now, chapter 8. Paul approves of the execution. Paul's already in a position of authority in the Jewish uh, faith. He is a rabbi, he is a Pharisee, and it looks like he's in charge of the persecution of Christians, or a major leader. And then it says, after Saul approving of his execution, 8 verse 1b, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then look at verse 4. Philip, another gifted speaker, proclaims Christ in Samaria. So here we see a pattern of the church being scattered by persecution, but actually being pushed by the Spirit to fulfill what? To fulfill Acts chapter 1, verse 9. You shall receive, 8 and 9. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the outermost parts of the earth. It is happening here, not the way they expected, but it is actually happening So, we see this pattern, dispersion leading to proclamation. Now, go to Acts chapter 11. Here, we have a first church named as a church. And it says, in Acts chapter 11, there's a church called Antioch. Peter reports, it says, to the church. In verse 19, it says, Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, remember we just talked about that, Acts 7, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. This is outside of Judea and Samaria. These are now the beginning of the uttermost parts of the earth, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is, non-Jewish people, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Why? To create the church. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Church being formed by the dispersion and the persecution that arose out of the revival of the Spirit. Now go to Acts 13. Look what happens in Antioch just a short time later. At the very first part of Acts 13, Barnabas and Saul, who were sent there to establish the church, are sent out by that church to do the ministry. Verse 13, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit, in revival, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. We know that as the missionary journeys of Paul. But let me ask you, what did Paul do on those missionary journeys? He planted churches. Paul planted churches. The Spirit of God, moving in his most powerful period at Pentecost, sends leaders out to plant churches. Where did Paul plant churches? To the other parts of the earth, all through the Mediterranean. Now, demographically, where did Paul plant churches? I'll give you three options. Rural, suburb, city. 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 So the Spirit of God, working in his most powerful, reviving time, gave Paul a specific strategy to plant churches in the leading cities. As a matter of fact, in Acts 16, we're all, all of us who are familiar with this famous Macedonian call, Paul hears in Acts 16, 12, someone calling him, I mean, Acts 
sorry, um, 16.9, he gets the Macedonian vision. A man appears to him in a vision, says, come to Macedonia. And in 16.12, he answers it by doing what? Going to the leading city in Macedonia, Philippi. The Spirit of God, in the greatest time of revival, led Paul and Barnabas with the agreement of the church at Antioch and, by default, the church of Jerusalem, to plant churches. And Paul's missionary journey could equally be called Paul's church planting strategy journey. He went to the cities, he went to the leading cities as a direct response to the leading of the Spirit of God. Now, go to Romans 15 for a moment. Who has Romans 15, 22 in a version other than the ESV? Because that's the one I've got. Who's got another version? Romans 15, 22. Just hand up for a second. Are we all having the same version? Does anyone have a non-ESV? Ah, thank you. Diversity, diversity. I love diversity. Okay. Now, um, read verses 22 to 24 in your non-ESV version. Just because we want to be inclusive, we're Canadian, you know, go. Romans 15, verse 22 to 20. Well, just do 22 and 23 for now. hear that? There's no more room for me to work? What, is, is every single person converted in the Mediterranean? No. In the ESV, it says there's no place. Anyone have any other version? Okay. No? That's fine. Here's, here's what Paul's, I mean, grapple with Paul's point here. Once I've planted churches in the leading cities, I've reached those areas under the Spirit of God in revival, that's how important church planting was as a byproduct of revival. Let's take a quick look at a couple other revivals just to kind of make the point. You've, you may have heard of the Reformation. Um, if you haven't, I'll give you uh, a really, really bad and simplistic point of view. Martin Luther started the Reformation, although there were forerunners to him, but Martin Luther started the Reformation by understanding that we are saved by faith alone in the grace of God alone, through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ alone. And we're not saved by anything we do, but only what Jesus has done for us and us receiving that by faith. That is the central discovery or rediscovery of the Reformation. Luther found it. Calvin agreed. Zwingli agreed. And between these three people and the churches and cities they led, the Reformation began. The Reformation is a very complicated thing. But here's what we mostly don't know about the Reformation. What we mostly know about the Reformation is how many churches switched from being Catholic to being evangelical and the fights that went on and all of the wars. What most of us don't know about the Reformation is how many churches were planted. And I just want to tell you about one part of the Reformation's church planning story, and that's the part that came directly and indirectly out of John Calvin's city, Geneva. It was a great time of change and tumult and doctrinal formation in the church. But do you know that John Calvin in Geneva received a massive influx of French-speaking expatriates from all over France who were fleeing persecution by the institutional church? Many of them asked to be sent back to plant churches, mostly into France. Calvin agreed, but required that he would train them, doctrinally and otherwise. In 1555, Calvin and Geneva had planted five churches in France. Four years later, they'd planted a hundred churches in France. Seven years after that, 2,000 Protestant churches had been planted in France, by Geneva, or by them multiplying, or one or two other cities sending a couple of church plants. There were over 2,000 church plants done in about a 15-year period in France, such that there were over 2 million evangelical believers in France after 20 years. 
They were 10% of the total population of France. They were 50% of the middle class and educated population. Here's some letters. Calvin wrote thousands of letters to these church planners, encouraging them, giving them advice, etc. Here's a couple of snippets of some letters. A church in Montpellier in France. Our church, thanks to the Lord, has so grown and so continues to grow every day that we are obliged to preach three sermons on Sundays to a total of five to six thousand people. A church in Toulouse, writing to the Geneva uh, elders. Our church has grown to the astonishing number of eight to nine thousand souls. A church in Bergerac. There is, by the grace of God, a movement in our region that the devil has already driven out for the most part. But we are able to provide ministers for ourselves now. They are already planting their own churches. Day to day we are growing and God has caused his work to bear such fruit that on sermons on Sunday there are between four and 5,000 people at worship. An extraordinary outpouring of God's Spirit. An extraordinary outpouring of church planning. Geneva and Calvin sent church planners to Italy, Netherlands, Poland, Germany, even to Brazil. The, the, the connection is extremely solid. Finally, the Great Awakening. Now, I used to be a lawyer, and, and, and this is the weakest part of my case, I'll, I'll admit. This is a little more indirect, but I think I've got something for us to think about. If you've heard of the Great Awakening in the 1700s, you know that the principal characters um, were uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield, two Anglican ministers in the United Kingdom, uh, it was called uh, England back then, uh, who were awakening a very worldly and sleepy church. Tens and tens of thousands of people became Christians during their ministry. Um, the whole land of England and Wales and Scotland was awakened, and then it spilled over into the North American colonies, particularly the United States colonies of the 1700s. I just want to zero in on one small aspect of it because it's a massive topic. But I want you to know this part about it. Have you heard of the Methodists? They're a denomination in our eyes, right? They weren't then. They were a movement within the Anglican Church started by John Wesley to help reform the Anglican Church. They were small groups. They were small little classes in homes of about 10 people where people would study the Bible together, confess their sins, and encourage one another to live Christ-like lives. Does that sound familiar? They were basically small groups in a time when no one was studying the Bible. And, and multiple small groups would get together, and they would, they would be organized into what's called a society. So each small town would have a society, and larger cities would have multiple societies. Okay, Very simple cell group structure. But what happened it was the existing Anglican Church, being very threatened by these people, created great tensions, and eventually they split. And so in the late 1700s, the Methodists became not an internal movement of the Anglican Church, but they became their own denomination. And when they did, they instantly had hundreds and hundreds of churches. Why? Because functionally they'd already had a church planting movement start before it was officially formed as a denomination. Thousands, in fact. I was talking to Michael Haken about this. He says that in Ontario, which was part of this North American colony of England, by the, by the early 1800s, one in every third person had become a Methodist in Ontario. S similar numbers in b the colonies below us. So I just want us to realize that Revival produces church planting. Revivals produce church planting because revivals get the church back to the mission of God to go and make disciples. And that kind of leads to our second point, which I want us to think about. But I'm going to stop here for a moment and say questions, comments, thoughts, pushbacks, etc. You have the floor. Go. Yes. It was. When it, first, when it first arose, it was a derogatory term for them because they were so methodical in the way they approached everything. John Wesley was, had a kind of an engineer's mind in the way he organized things. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, 
it wasn't it wasn't officially a church planting movement. It was a reform movement, but it was set up so that basically church plants were created within the denomination that eventually all left together. But you can't formally call it a church planting movement in the same way that these were these other ones were. Right. Because John wasn't establishing churches at the beginning. He was establishing internal reform movements that took over these churches and then split off and got their own pastors, etc. So so there's a it's it's a little weaker, yes. I have a question. Yes. What would you say to someone who would push back and say, "Well, revival doesn't bring destruction until revival brings the Um You know, like the early church, it was, it was growing without structure and becoming way So until Acts 13, I can buy their argument, but then you got the rest of the book of Acts, which is very structured. Paul goes and plants churches, goes, comes back on his way back, he appoints elders. So here's my question for you. How old were those elders in the Lord? Paul goes on his missionary journey, goes up here, comes back. How many months is it between first conversion and being appointed an elder? A year? Six months? So in one sense, there's a messiness to it. Like, we would never do that. Like, Elders in my denomination, dude, you need to be like in the 40-year mark and have memorized stuff before. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, but, you know, we would, we would look at that and go incredibly messy in one sense. But from someone making your argument, I'm saying he's trying to impose a kind of structure and order immediately. You know, he goes, he plants a church. As soon as he comes back, which is he's already appointing elders. He's already structuring this organic thing. So, and, and that's one thing I really actually was hoping you would ask, because there's this North American, at least, if not larger, sort of mentality that when the Spirit comes, it's all organic, and it's not structured, and strategy is opposed to the Spirit of God. Really? So then why did Jesus choose 12 from the beginning, being the very Spirit of God infused God-man, he seemed to have order right away. Why did he choose 12? What did 12 mean to the people? The 12 tribes. He was reconstituting the people of Israel. Correct. Why, when, when Jesus was doing a miracle with the bread, um, when he fed the 5,000, did he organize them in camps of 50 and 100 why did he organize them so carefully? Why didn't they just have this big, organic mass of people singing and in charismatic freedom? Why were they organized so tightly? Because that's the way the Israelites used to encamp in the desert when they were going through the desert to the Promised Land in groups of 50 and 100. He was reconstituting that experience of the people of God out in the wilderness getting the manna from heaven did the Spirit of God come in that miracle? Absolutely, but it was organized. The distinction between the two, the tension between the two that we have created, I think needs to be put aside because I sure don't see it. Yes, people say there was a certain amount of messiness. Yes, when the Spirit of God moves, because it's growing so quickly. If you had 3,000 new converts come to your church, what would you do the next Sunday? Dude, I have no idea. I don't have enough small group leaders. <laughs> I don't have enough space. Uh, you know, I don't know what I would do. Yeah, there are moments there of disorganization or whatever, but very quickly they tried to put order to it. Does that make sense? As a matter of fact, Calvin's Institutes, you ever seen Calvin's Institutes? a really thick theological book. You know what it was originally? It was about this thick. You know what it was? Church planning manual. For all his church planners. That's why he created it. Here's the basic doctrines for you to go out and teach your people. Then they wanted more, and, you know, as they got more established, he just kept writing more and more and more until it became, you know, a systematic theology in its own right. But it was originally, it was basically a church planning manual. Cool, eh? Yes. You've actually kind of answered your question by defining it. Structure is that, uh, that kind of order that you impose for greater effectiveness and efficiency. Tradition is uh, not necessarily structure. It could be a series of values. For example, it is a traditional value in North American evangelicalism to think that revivals produce disorder. 
We just talked about that. That's a cultural tradition that I say needs to be put to rest. It has nothing to do with structure. It's just a value. So tradition is something that has been passed on that we have accepted and continue to hold. Either it can be about structure, it can be beliefs, core values, you know. So we'll, we'll get a little bit to, to that whole issue of the tension between church planning and tradition next. Does that sound good? All right. Okay, so my first point is, what's my first point? The revival is church planning. Good. I spent 20 minutes basically saying one sentence. Hopefully I'll be a little quicker. Okay? Okay. Second thing, church planning helps catalyze renewal. I'm not sure about revival because I'm not a church historian. But, uh, and, and here I'm, I'm giving a hat tip. I'm, I'm going to tip my hat to Ed Stetzer and Tim Keller. Tim Keller is my mentor. He helped plant our church. He trained me. And he gave a... Uh, in 2002, before he was famous, he, he wrote and gave us a paper about the importance of church planning and some of the statistics that he had realized. Ed Stetzer has since validated, I think, almost all of these uh, points. And in my own experience, I have found them to be true as well. Uh, so I'm going to talk about why I think you all should think about being involved with church plants. Whether you are an existing church with many years of tradition— a fairly new church, or not in a church at all. Church planting isn't just a symptom of renewal. I think it catalyzes it. So first of all, church plants are obeying the Great Commission and the call in Acts 1-9 to go to the outer parts of the earth. Uh, We have seen Jesus went and he said, go and make disciples in Matthew 28 of the nations. Go into all the world to make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he said, now wait till the Holy Spirit comes. And he said in Acts chapter 1, you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses. There is a, those things go together. His command to make disciples, his promise of the Holy Spirit to bear witness are two parts of the same mission of God, which is to reach and disciple the nations partly through church planning. So here's some things that, that Tim and, and Tim Keller and Ed Stetzer um, have, have said and have proven. Firstly, statistically speaking, church plants reach the unreached better than any other strategy, period. The studies are out, the denominational studies, the church planting studies, etc. Church plants reach people who are not attending any other church. The average church plant in North America averages somewhere between 40 and 60% of its people being people who didn't attend a church prior to going to that church. Now, they may be in a lull period. It's not that they're all completely were unchurched. I'm not saying that because the statistics aren't as clear. But 40 to 60% of the people that show up in the average church plant were not attending a church anywhere before they got into there. Churches over 15 years old usually have between 10 and 20% of their church coming from people who don't have, weren't going to church before. 80 to 90% is just people transferring from attending other churches. Over 15 years old, you have a radical downturn in the amount of people who were previously unchurched coming. It's just statistically there. Why? Keller says, and I will... Uh, I'll paraphrase them. Older congregations have powerful internal pressures and traditions that grow within them that make them more focused on their existing constituents. You just are who you are, and after a while, the crowd tells you the things that need to happen. Let me give you a quick example of this. This Sunday past, we were at Thanksgiving, we played the doxology in a service. We do that once in a while. It's nice. You know, you can sing it over uh, your meal or you can play it in a church. We had an organ player because we were in our new facility, which we're about to renovate. So we had a special service. We can't be there every week. But we bought an old church, and he played the organ. It was, whoa, like we just don't hear organs anymore. I don't know about your church, but it's pretty rare. It was a kind of a moving experience. So on Facebook already, my constituents, we need to have that every week. We know, Let's get the organ. Let's get the doxology. Hold it. Hold it. See what they're doing? Internal pressure to add another element. Who wants the doxology? The new person or the existing Christian? What does the doxology every week say 
to someone who's completely unchurched or nominally churched? What does it say to them? What does worship music on, on an organ say to you? Done properly, it's hipster cutting edge. <laughs> That's what you should say, right? Right. Done every week and dominantly, it, what does it probably say to the average 20-something unchurched person? It's my grandparents' church, yeah. See, so, but the internal pressure is already there. You feel it? And so you just, it's just natural. It happens. Now, I sent a long email with why missional thinking makes us parse that and think about that and what does that actually mean. And like I had to write like a two-page email to explain why we were going to proceed very carefully with this idea. You know how exhausting it is to do that every time someone gives you pressure to add something into the church service that everyone will love except the people we're trying to reach. See? I'm pretty focused on trying to reach the unreached, and I feel that pressure regularly. Tim's right. That's just the way churches are. And if you're not constantly aware, your church will grow into a comfort zone of activity. See, you're already talking, right? Ah, my church, yes. Okay, stop for a moment. Does any, has anyone experienced this? The internal pressure is creating a comfortable environment that's just a little less accessible to people who are, un, you know, not culturated to our church. Have you experienced that? Anyone else? Put your hand up if you have. Okay. So you know what we're talking about. It's just the natural thing that happens. As churches age, they just fall into these things. Church plants don't. Why? They don't have tradition. They don't have any baggage. They can think afresh about what it means to bring the gospel to this group of people. Okay? Pretend all of you right here on my right are a group of people in a community and none of you have gone to church, okay? What would you want? Now talk to me. What would you want from a church? Throw it out. What would you want from a church? A rock band. Okay, why? Because you want to be entertained, okay? And, and that's the music medium of you, right? You want, it, you want a familiar music medium. You want to feel like they're connected to my cultural reality. Yes. Okay. Okay. There you go. Now you, now you get the missiological problem. Who do, we, who do we go after? Right? So you don't want entertainment, but you, maybe it's not the rock band, but you want some kind of musical connection to your culture, at least. Let's, let's rephrase that. Okay. What else? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So Christianese just makes them feel excluded, makes them feel dumb, makes them feel like you're some kind of weird insular club who has no connection to the culture. So Christianese is a big right. Okay, keep going. Right. Yeah. So the messages are applicable to today's society. So if you were planning a church for example, uh, you would want the message to have illustrations from what? Help me out here. Okay, these guys apparently want to jump in on your stuff. Last week's news, what else? What's going on in the office? Yeah, what else? Last month's picture. Last month's film, right? The viral Facebook video that just went around. What's that? Possibly the election. Whatever's going on in the cycle and rhythm of the culture, right? Absolutely. So you would probably want, name some things in the last month that you would expect the message to have at least shown some cognizance of and been able to think about from a Christian perspective. Blue Jays. Yeah, Blue Jays. Yeah. Yes, probably, actually. The Syrian refugee crisis. Yeah, if you haven't mentioned that, what's a 20-something think? You're not thinking of the culture because it's everywhere. What else? Yep, the bombing in Ankara. Yep. What else? Uh, maybe ISIS, the elections. Absolutely. So you're getting you're getting a flavor of it. Okay. Any cultural events, films, anything like that going on? That see see that that's how church plants think. See, they're thinking about what the people around them are thinking about. 
okay? Church plants are exegeting the culture. So they tend to be able to speak the language better because they don't have to speak the language of the history and the culture of the 15 or 20 or 30-year-old church. They have the freedom not to have to do that. They can speak the culture of the people who are outside the church without offending anyone. It's just a lot easier, okay? So, so they obey the Great Commission. As a result, they reach people more effectively. What happens to an existing church when you see a church down the road, oh, they're doing something really effective, if you're a healthy existing church, what do you do with that information? Thank God. What else do you do? Steal their idea. We call that R&D. You call it research and development. In ministry, we call it rob and duplicate. <laughs> right? They bring fresh new ideas and faith on evangelism. You see them doing that, you go, you know what? I was starting to not believe that we could reach those people, but they are. They can be reached. Let's try. Wait, they found a way that works. Let's modify that to us, because we always have to, because that's who we are, and let's try that. They actually, they're the R&D lab for existing churches, if the existing churches will let them. Okay? That's the first thing, is they're this R&D lab. Secondly, they're a reminder of the central mission of the church. Churches that, are, that, are, that have matured tend to think that the central mission of the church is to make mature, giving, serving, fairly comfortable disciples of the church, <laughs> not disciplers of the nations. They remind us that the central mission is to be on the mission of reaching the lost. We're here for them, and our discipleship should be to help us reach them, not just to make us more comfortable with who we are. So they bring fresh new ideas on evangelism. They are an um, inspirational impetus and reminder of mission. Here's the third thing they do, and I learned this one. They take under-challenged Christians and give them leadership opportunities much more quickly. We said that about Acts, right? They, they're, they're getting elders probably within months, some of these churches. So what does a church planter do in terms of giving leadership? Who gets leadership in a church plant? You guys haven't been there because you'd know this right away if you'd been in one. Like, you ever been in a church plan? <laughs> Whoever shows up gets leadership. That's, that's pretty much the rule. I've, they they had, used to have a joke at Grace Toronto. Don't come back a second time because you'll be leading a ministry. Because you were. Like, we was just all hands on deck. Church plants are like that. What about mature churches? The more mature you are and the larger you are, the more efficient you are. The more efficient you are means the least amount of leaders produce the most amount of results. That is wonderful for efficiency. What's it really bad at? Mobilizing the maximum amount of leaders for kingdom work. Church plants are inefficient and effective as all get out at mobilizing new and existing leaders. Now, if you send off a bunch of people, key leaders or underserved leaders, what are you doing to them? You're re-energizing them, right? Because they got to trust God like crazy. Now, what have you got in your ministry? You got a hole. You just lost 50 liters. So now what are you thinking of? Who can I mobilize? Yeah. And so guess what it does to you? You get back into trying to find leaders and mobilize leaders. So the church plant benefits because they got all these people re-energized, trusting God. Who else benefits? The church that planted them. They're renewed. See that? And finally, a kingdom mindset starts to come out. You know, you got a new church plant right near you, and it's doing pretty well. You've got to decide pretty quickly whether you're going to be threatened or gladdened. Right? Whose kingdom are you building? And so it forces you to think more kingdom-minded. So church planting, for all these reasons, I think is a... Re Properly done, and that's our final point, properly done, church planting is a blessing to the whole church. Quick, stop. Before we get to the third discussion, questions, comments, thoughts, go. Yes? What are your thoughts on mega dwellers? So, um, so my thoughts are until I get there, I don't like them, and when I get there, I'll love them. I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, keep going. So, there is a great 
Right. So, so mega churches usually are mega churches for two reasons. They usually have phenomenal preachers and phenomenal organizational leaders in the middle of them. So they are able to scale very quickly, and they're able to attract very quickly because particular gifts happen. There's nothing wrong with that. Charles Spurgeon is a hero of mine. George Whitfield is a hero of mine. He was a preacher who would get 10, 20, 30,000 people where the average pre- preacher frustratedly would get 300. I'm okay with megachurches per se. I'm okay with megachurches per se. They reach a bunch of people that nobody else reaches, to be honest with you. And they serve a bunch of people that need to be served. We need all kinds of churches. We need big churches, small churches, medium churches, etc. But what I want to say is, church planting can be very threatening to more mature churches. And I want us to take that away and say, let's encourage church planting, the right kind of church planting. That's the last thing that I want to talk about. So I think mega churches are, as a part of the whole story, a, a, a needed and beautiful part of the overall body of Christ. As a model to aspire to for most people, they are a crushing burden because almost every megachurch has in its center people with noted particular unusual gifts of of preaching i just have to say that i don't know a megachurch that doesn't have and there might be one or two in the states like in the south because you know some incredible like chris tomlin's the worship leader who are there for the music like there's but you know them there's the four of them all 2,000 other megachurches have gifted public communicators and very gifted organizational leaders as executive pastors or whatever they call it. And that's just an unusual thing. If you go to the Meeting House, uh, if you've heard of the Meeting House, so the Meeting House has, in, and I have a lot of theological differences with the Meeting House, and, and Bruxy and I have had some very charitable discussions about our, our mutual agreement to disagree, but Bruxy's one of the most phenomenally gifted communicators. I think, in in Canada. And Tim Day is, I think, was the most gifted organizational leader uh, of any church that I know. Um, and between the two of them, Tim was, the, by the way, Tim was the senior pastor and Bruxy was the preaching pastor. And that combination is is partly, largely, the story behind the success of the Meeting House. It's that simple. It's a particular gifting. I don't aspire to it. I have neither uh, of those particular gifts. So um, we just need to learn they have a place. Okay. Does that make sense? Structurally, they have a place. Theologically, I wish they all agreed with me, but that's just my, you know, way of thinking, of course. Any other questions on this? Renewal, church plant to existing church stuff. Okay. Yes. Correct. Yeah, so Tim... Yeah, so Tim Keller talks actually a lot about that because especially in New York City, for example, there are a ton of church plants that are uh, not in English for a bunch of immigrant communities within the New York City metro area. And they're way more effective at reaching first-generation immigrants because they speak their language than any existing church that didn't. And, and that's quite typical. And so Tim's point of view is that church plants are much better at reaching new immigrants. And I, this, is, this is one area where I say, as a general rule, that's true. And in New York City, that's true. In Toronto, in the Chinese community, I'm not sure that's true. Because we have such an incredible infrastructure of Chinese churches who were ready for generations to reach Chinese-speaking people, both Cantonese and Mandarin, and that I'm not as sure that we need church plants because— I, I just think the jury's a little bit out in Toronto about that particular community, possibly also the Korean community. Those two communities have been very intentional about reaching people in their um, 
uh, original language of origin, and they've done a great job and without seeming to need a ton of church plants to do it. What actually the Chinese community is beginning to say it needs is for their second and third generation people who grew up speaking English, they need churches because they're losing them. As a matter of fact, they're losing them to us. <laughs> and that's one of the things that has become clear. There's a, there's, a, there's, there's a live discussion that I'm not part of, I've not been invited to, in the Chinese community about what to do about the Grace Toronto issue, which is our people are going to other churches. And I think that's something that they're going to figure out. They are really, uh, really mission-minded and they're really smart. We, we, didn't, we didn't grow out to try that, but they have now— We've now inherited some of second and third generation Asian community people who don't want a monocultural church experience. So they're trying to figure that out, and I get that. Yes? Yeah. CBC, yeah. Yeah, and I think you guys are going to figure it out. There's a lot of uh, very smart Chinese uh, church leaders right now that are really going at it, and I so I think that uh, the thing you won't be able to 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 figure out is if you want to stay monocultural, there's still a lot of third especially third generation that don't want a purely monocultural experience. And I don't know that that'll change. That's just one of those things that it'll be interesting to see how it works out. Anyways, that's, there's, 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 a, there's a live discussion going on. So we're going to get to our third talk. And this is, this is me talking to you. Uh, okay, so this is where, feel free. Okay, this is my personal, I'm not looking at Tim Keller. I'm not looking at history. I'm looking at the kind of church plants that I think we need in Canada, especially in this culture, um, for this day, okay? So this third discussion is what kind of church plants do we need? Because there are all kinds of church plants out there. I was in the United States for seminary in the first few years, and there were a lot of church plants in the United States that were just basically marketing themselves to the same people. Let me find churchgoers and say, we're more casual. We're more upbeat. We have Starbucks. We have Seattle's Best. We have Krispy Kreme. I mean, it was crazy the kind of marketing that they were doing and the way they were trying to distinguish themselves from each other. It was really all about trying to find the Christians and create a crowd. So the first thing that we need are missionary church plants. That may sound stupid, but we actually need church plants that are trying to reach unreached people because it's really, really hard work. Have you tried? It's really hard work. The second thing we need at the same time are rock-solid, biblically faithful church plants. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but We'll talk about this a little bit more in a few minutes, but the culture has become not just more resistant to Christian faith and values. It has become more powerful in the lives of all of us. So there's a, there's a twofold combination that I want to talk about in a few minutes. But we need churches that hold to the historic gospel and keep central doctrines rock solid. Too many churches now, in an attempt to gain some kind of cultural foothold, are willing to play a little bit fast and loose with fundamental Christian doctrines of being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by the work of Christ alone, for God's glory alone. We need to think about the fact that—and I'll I'll talk about this—that doctrinally as well as functionally, we're innovating. 
I don't mind functional innovation trying new strategies, but doctrinal innovation is deadly. We need to presuppose biblical authority. And I, I hear that now. You can't prove that the Bible is inerrant. You can try. Ravi Zacharias Ministries has people that can defend the authority of the Bible. But if they were asked verse by verse to scrub every single verse of the Bible and prove that it has no errors, it would take an eon to do. You actually have to presuppose that God wanted to communicate and that he's able to overcome human fallibility in communicating. And therefore, despite some difficult things in the Bible, it is authoritative and inerrant. Because if you don't have the Bible as your authority, this culture is too strong. It will beat you down. End of story. And you will compromise historic Christian doctrines. I take the position that in the incarnation, God overcame human fallibility by himself becoming the word made flesh. God can overcome human infallibility in the incarnation. He can also do it in the writing of his word. If the living word was a human being without fallibility, the written word can be a book without fallibility, even though it was written by fallible people. And I look to how Jesus treated the word. He always treated it as divinely authoritative, inspired, and without error. And that is good enough for me. I can't prove every single verse in the Bible is absolutely inerrant. I just, I don't have the capacity. We don't have enough information. We just have to presuppose some of it. But if you don't do that, you will bow to the culture. And that's the last thing we need. We need missionary evangelistic church plants, and we need church plants that are biblically faithful. Thirdly, I think we need churches that engage the culture. We need to be willing to identify what parts of the culture are good and affirm them. There are so many parts of the culture that we're struggling with right now. I get that. We also need to find parts of the culture that are good and affirm it because we want them to know we love them. A parent who disciplines their child when they do poorly and affirms them when they do well is a parent who loves their child, and the child gets that the discipline is for love. But if the parent only ever criticizes, only ever disciplines, you begin to just think you've got an angry parent, and their criticism starts to fall on deaf ears. We need to realize that. We need to let the culture know we're for the culture and that our critique is out of love. Now, I want to give you a quick mini history. You ready? You poor Ottawa guys. I don't know how you guys are still up. Okay. Pre-1970, the Christian churches were defensive. We all believed the rapture was going to come. We just huddled together and were waiting for the end of time when we would be delivered. Their late great planet Earth was the bestseller of the 1970s. Christian churches were defensive in our culture. In the 1980s, we elected Jimmy Carter in 76, or so we think. I mean, we're in Canada. We didn't do any of this. And then Ronald Reagan in 80 and 84... Christians reengaged the political cultural process. The moral majority was born. There was hope. At the same time that this was happening culturally, a movement out of Willow Creek and Saddleback Church came that said this, if we market the gospel properly, this culture will buy it. And they forgot the doctrine of human depravity, which says that humans left to their own nature will resist the claims of the gospel. Out of the best of intentions, I'll I'll stick with Willow Creek particularly because I'm most familiar with them, that movement assumed the content of the gospel, innovated on the techniques of applying the gospel. But the problem with assuming the gospel is that if you assume it, people forget it. And they become a-doctrinal. They don't care about doctrine. And then bad theology gets in. It's good to innovate functionally about strategies and techniques and how to apply it. But it's very dangerous to not care about theology. Every generation has to fall in love with the gospel and appropriate it and dig it deep because it leaks out of us all the time. That's why... It has been my five-year prayer to have this kind of conference. Paul Martin and I have been praying and thinking about this for, for almost a decade, okay? Willow Creek was a great idea, it felt like, in the 80s, and I bought the Kool-Aid. The problem with that movement wasn't so much that it was mega church. 
that was a problem. It wasn't so much that it relied on actually the specific evangelistic gifts of Bill Hybels, which it did. Mega churches have specific noted gifts. That was another problem. The, the biggest problem for me was theology was put aside and it was just all about pragmatics. We forgot to reappropriate the gospel for our generation, my generation. And you guys inherited a theological churches that didn't teach you much of the doctrines of the Bible. Well, you're probably my generation, but the rest of you, uh, okay, you might be in my generation too, but most of you grew up in churches where theology was de-emphasized, and so you really didn't know what you believed. And then when the culture turned more antithetical to us, and because of social media, the culture became way more prevalent in shaping our lives, we were defenseless. And so I need to say to you, that the average 20-something Christian coming into my church from other churches is about 60% less theologically and biblically oriented than that same 20-something group 10 to 15 years earlier. It's a massive decline in knowledge of your Bible and the doctrines of it. I used to be in campus ministry. I knew a 20-somethings thought in the 80s and in the 90s and in the 2000s. And then in 2005, I came here, and I was shocked. I hadn't been in Toronto since about 1992, but I'd been around Toronto people around 2000, went away to seminary, was in the South for a few years, and in those five years, I was shocked at what the product of these kind of atheological churches, mostly trying to be seeker-sensitive, what they'd done to the, to the teens, you guys. You had lost your understanding, and because of that, you don't have a Christian worldview that's total and coherent. You start grabbing the worldview from this incredibly powerful, persuasive culture. That's just where we're at now. And so what I want to say is four things a church plant needs to be. Biblically faithful, missionary evangelistic. Thirdly, really looking at the culture carefully so we're both pro and con. And fourthly, intensively discipling people. We need to pick that back up. Without the turtling and the defensive insularity of the Church of the 70s, we need to teach our people the Bible, the doctrines of the Bible, and how to live out Christian ethics again because they are not getting it in their youth group, but they are getting it on Facebook. And who's winning? If you're not getting it from your church and you are getting it from Facebook, who's shaping your worldview and your ethics? Our teens are coming out under-discipled and very, very influenced by the culture. We need to start changing that. Okay? Pushback, thought, questions, comments. Yes? How do you um, have a church that does all that, disciples the youth, and um, in, in, in literally you know, the age-old doctrines, uh, without um, you know, at the same time falling prey to wanting to kill the old Right. So... That's the, see, that's the question of the hour. I came out of um, Redeemer's church planning movement, very missional, very evangelistic. Our Sunday services, with all Christianese is explained. Every part of the service is explained. We're very conscious that everything we do, from the sermon to the order service, we call it a liturgy, we like bigger words, uh, all of that is explained and missionally accessible. Yet on the back end, we have small groups for the 450, and we have discipleship Tuesdays and Thursdays for um, 60 emerging leaders a year, training them in the basics of the faith, et cetera. And we, we haven't figured it out, but we've at least figured out what the problem is, and we're trying. And so every person who's going to be a small group leader gets to be a small group leader for about a year, and then they get pulled out in their second year, and they get some discipleship before they're put back in. That's what we're trying to do. It's just the beginning. It's... It's not enough. We don't have the answers. I think I've diagnosed a problem. I am love to have other people figure out with me so I can do some R&D, robbing and duplicating on how to solve it. But I do think when Packer and that other guy wrote that book about catechesis, that we need to re-catechize this generation, he's on to something. Great question. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and the problem is the church has only so much energy. You pour all your energy into mission, you don't have enough for discipleship. This is always the problem that we're talking about. So I don't know exactly what it means, 
But I do know that the challenge is greater than any I've seen before. And you need to really think carefully about mission and very carefully about discipleship. And every church, whether you're an existing church or not, you really need to put a lot more thought, energy, and resources into how to thoughtfully disciple your people. Because the day is long gone, in my opinion, when, when the average nominal person, at least in this city, will come into my church. They have to have almost years of faithful witness by a properly mature or discipled Christian before they'll come. That's generally what we're seeing. It's taking three years between first contact and the average skeptic showing up in our service. And then it's taking two to three years after that before they have a profession of faith. I'm just slow, I think. I don't know. But it's a five to six year process for us to see completely unchurched people come to faith. That's just the reality. And so it just, it just changes the whole game for us. Yes. When you were talking about vocation, it made me think of personally. So you switch from the very Christian American South to the secular, but I mean, Canada's. Yes. Um, yeah. For things like, so gay marriage, for example, yeah. we learned that lesson, or we've been trying to yeah. cultivate for 10 years now. So yeah. 10 years more secular. Yeah. Less church than America. Way longer. But on that issue, we're 10 years ahead. On other things, we're 30. So, you, so what were some of your... Um, I actually live in Bolivia, so I feel like... Um, in a different way? Now in Canada, but just like... Uh, it's at least in my experience, or like on campus, um, but I say church, or being a missionary, or hey, just even anything. You mentioned, pastor said this, what are you reading? They're just like so... Correct. Correct. Yeah. Was that a hard switch when you came back, or you must have had help? Or no, I mean, I grew up in Montreal, <laughs> very atheistic, sort of nothing. Um, uh, became a Christian in law school where no one else was really a Christian. Moved to Toronto and practiced law in, it was a lot better back then. Then went to Vancouver. So aside from my few years in the South, and there were only five, I had been deeply schooled in Canadian secular culture. So um, it, it, was, it was coming back here, it wasn't so hard to face the secularism, although it was a little more militant and sharp uh, than I had expected um, because Vancouver is actually easier, in my opinion. Vancouverites think they have the hardest place, but everyone's so happy in Vancouver, they'll accept your Christianity. They don't really care. Torontonians actually get ticked off at Christians. But what I was really surprised at, what shocked me, was the amount of cultural influence on the people who were coming out of what seemed like solid churches, even the old church that I'd been at, you know? Like it had gone Willow Creek, and I had been part of that. I'd helped transform the youth group into Willow Creek. Then I come back, and I'm meeting the alumni of my own youth group and going, holy camoli, what have we wrought? We wrought a lack of knowing your theology and lack of knowing your biblical doctrines. You had no equipping to help you counter what you met in university. And so that has caused a sea change of, of thinking in us in that if we want our people to be out there witnessing in this intimidating, in this resistant a culture, we need to really equip and empower them because... Their friends aren't going to come. They have to be our missionaries. It has to be incarnational. We're considered an attractional church because we have 40 or 50 coming, but it's because so many people have worked so hard for so long to get those 40 or 50 non-Christians showing up. And most of those non-Christians were churched. They're okay with coming to church. Unchurched, 15 a week. You know, it's nothing. And so that's the reality we've had to focus on. If we want our people to be missionaries, and they have to be, they can't just... It's just, the Willow Creek, just, you know, invite them and they'll come. This just doesn't work in Canada. Even when I started with the Redeemer movement, they're like, preach the gospel as if they're non-Christians, and then they'll come because people just naturally invite them. Uh-huh, yeah, that maybe is in Baltimore. <laughs> That's not in Toronto. I have to specifically train my people, push them to get out there, be public, and I have story after story of people who became public in their faith in this city and lost promotions, 
friends, job opportunities because of their public Christian. They have counted the cost. It is no mean thing to be a public Christian as a 20-something downtown Toronto. And I needed, as a pastor, to stop being so judgmental that they were thinking they weren't trying. They were trying. They had lost promotions, money, friends. They were bloodied. And so they were like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll try it, but you better equip me a lot better because that was hard. You know what I mean? It's culturally very expensive, not just financially. We're supposed to end at 2.30, aren't we? We're five minutes over. What do we have next? Break till 3? Okay. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine to keep talking if you guys want to keep talking, but I also recognize that I'm supposed to stop now. <laughs> so I will stop. And then uh, after I prayed, then you guys can go. And anyone who wants to hang out, we'll talk for a few more minutes, and then we'll go back to the main session. Sound good? Thank you, Jesus, for this time. Thank you for a full and frank discussion about the realities of church planting in our day. May it be that you, by your Spirit, unleash a new awakening such that thousands of new churches are planted and millions of people are converted. We do want to see Canada changed, and only you can do it. We pray that the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the one who came and lived and died and rose again, the one whose beauty was unmarred by sin, whose eternity was unchanged by the Incarnation, the one in whom we live and have our being, that you, Jesus Christ, would come in such a powerful way into our hearts and lives. Help us to experience your love and your grace in a new way and your love for the lost in a new way, that we change forever the way we approach what church is all about, and that we become missionaries to our own places of work, to our own neighborhoods. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.